Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, what about that X chromosome in your DNA? What does it mean? How is it useful as a tool? Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll be talking to Deborah Renard from Legacy Tree Genealogist about how you can use that X chromosome to narrow down the ancestors one of your matches may be coming from. Plus, I'll be chatting with two ladies who, over lunch, decided they wanted to start a new lineage society involving American farmers. And in less than a year, they have over 900 members. That's all this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover, gather, connect, a presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And welcome to Extreme Genes, America's Family History Show and ExtremeGenes.com. I am Fisher, your radio root sleuth on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. It is great to have you along. We've got some great guests coming up today. First of all, coming up in about 10 minutes or so, we're going to talk to Deborah Renard. She's with our great sponsor, Legacy Tree Genealogist. She's a genetic genealogist, and she's going to talk to us about an aspect of genetic genealogy that, that many of us, I would imagine, haven't used very often, and that's how do you use that X chromosome thing? Where do you find out about it? What does that mean? Why could it be useful? Where can you see it? Well, Deborah's got all the answers coming up. And then after her, later in the show, we're going to talk to a pair of ladies who got together over lunch one day last winter and decided, hey, it's time we start a new lineage society honoring our farmer ancestors. They've got over 900 members going so far. So you're going to want to hear what they have to say coming up later on in the show. And of course, we'll do Ask Us Anything at the back end as always. Hello, David. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you too. And uh, I'll tell you, those packages keep on arriving and occasionally you get a fruitcake. Oh, yeah. What do you do with them? Yeah, what do you do with them? Well, I can tell you that Julie Ruttinger's family had no idea what to do with it in 1878 when Adelia Ford, her great-great-grandmother, died. So they put it under a glass cake dish, and there it sat and sat. And 141 years later, it's still in the family. Oh, no. Uneaten. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> From what year? 1878. Oh, 141 years ago. But that's not all. Because the oldest fruitcake was found in Egypt and is in a museum in Switzerland. That one is 4,170 mm. years old. That might be a little dusty, but the 141-year-old, I'm sure, is in great edible shape. I'm sure if you get a chainsaw, you could probably dice it and slice it, yeah. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> well, you know, anyway you cut it, DNA research is an amazing thing. And on ExtremeGenes.com is a great story on Chris Long, who lives in Reno, Nevada. Now, Chris has survived a serious illness, and his DNA was replaced by a donor's blood, and now his blood contains the DNA of the donor. Isn't that weird? Yeah. It's mixed with his own, but the DNA is present. And also the DNA taken from Chris's lips, his inner cheek of his mouth, his tongue, all come up with this genetic fingerprint. What happens if the person in Germany commits a crime? 
Would Chris be liable or vice versa? <laughs> yeah, if he'd done a DNA test, you never know. They, they put it up on JetMatch and they go, ah, he has escaped to America. <laughs> yeah, this could be an interesting story, too. And they were saying, what if the guy had kids? Would his kids be the biological children of the blood donor in Germany or his own? Mm-hmm. So they're really looking into this. They're saying it's not likely that that would be the case, but it's kind of an overlap of DNA. And it's been many years. Well, I guess you could call that person in Germany his non-flood relative. Yes, exactly. Well, you know, this holiday season, when you go up into the attic to get the Christmas tree or the wrapping paper, one family was in for a surprise when a false ceiling revealed all the supplies and bottles from Prohibition. I guess the family had a bootlegging connection, and their elderly relative, who had died just recently, always forbade them from going in the attic. Yeah, and they found bottles and all this stuff for the bootlegging operation and the false ceiling, and nobody would have ever known. Nobody did know for many years in that family. Incredible. Well, you know, it's funny. Sometimes you find things that you don't want in your attic. Like, do you remember from the 60s, those silver Evergleam Christmas trees? Oh, oh, yes. I had some neighbors who had those. We never had that. We never would have had anything like that. I've never seen one, though, in probably 40-some-odd years now. Well, they stopped making them in 1971, but the Washington Post had a very interesting article on the 60th anniversary of the Evergreens. Yeah, we don't have any in my family photos either. Thank goodness for that. Yeah. Well, one discovery recently for a family in Richfield, Connecticut, when they were adding on to their 1790s-era home, was that they found a skeleton. And oh, wow. when the archaeologists came in, they found two more. These robust young men, who appear to have been buried in the 1770s, which makes sense because the Battle of Ridgefield, Connecticut, took place in April of 1777. Yes, an addition was built over a burial ground. Oh, wow. So the addition of the house is over the old burial ground, and we've got some of the people who were killed in that battle in 1777. How would you like to know you're sleeping in that house every night, right? That'd be creepy. (laughs) Yeah, it kind of goes back to poltergeist. You know, if you've seen any ghosts with tri-cornered hats, you know what's going on. Right. (laughs) Well, you know, sometimes our history discovers things that we don't like. And Krispy Kreme realized that their forebears, the Ryman family, contributed to Hitler's cause and World War II. And of course, we know about the Holocaust and what Germany did. So the Krispy Kreme Foundation has pledged $11 million, and half of that has already been given to Jewish material claims against Germany. And this is money that's given to actual Holocaust survivors. Right. They were using slave labor and uh, POWs Mm -hmm. as well for the company that ultimately now owns Krispy Kreme. I mean, it's just a strange connection, but they discovered it and they're trying to do the right thing. Yeah, no, I think that's really amazing after 70 years that they're just not turning a blind eye to it. They're actually doing the right thing. Bravo to them. Well, that's about all the news I have. All right, David. Thank you so much. Very pleased to be talking today to Deborah Renard. She's from Louisville, Kentucky. She is a DNA specialist with Legacy Tree Genealogist, one of our great sponsors. And uh, Deb, welcome to Extreme Genes. It's great to have you. Thank you, Scott. Glad to be here. You know, we get a lot of DNA specialists who come on the show, and I love the different aspects to this that people bring to it. And this one is kind of unique, and this is a little specialized. I will I will qualify it as that as we start this thing off, because I don't really know that we use this very much, but the X chromosome can be a really important tool if you're trying to determine where certain matches come from on your tree. 
Absolutely. It's it's a very unique kind of DNA, has special inheritance that can really give us some great clues as to who our common ancestor is with a particular match. Right. Now, let's just talk about this a little bit, because I think DNA, first of all, for those who haven't done it yet or are just getting started in it, when we usually refer to that, we're talking about the autosomal DNA that is sold through uh, Ancestry.com and all of the major DNA companies. XDNA is a portion of this autosomal DNA that is passed down uh, through daughters and to sons through their mothers. And this is quite different from mitochondrial DNA, right? It, it is, absolutely. And, and to clarify, it's not really part of the autosomal DNA. We have 23 chromosomes, pairs of chromosomes, in the nucleus of most of our cells. And XDNA and YDNA compose the 23rd pair, mm-hmm. the first 22 pair that, that are the autosomes. Right. But you're, you're not wrong, though, because we typically get results back, information back about our XDNA along with the results of an autosomal right. test. Right. They're all there together, but not every company provides you the X information. Ancestry does not. That's correct. It is family tree DNA and 23andMe, which provide us with information about our xDNA. And for those occasions where you want to try to eliminate where certain aspects of a match are coming from, this is where it gets important. So how do you use it in your cases? Well, the because of the special inheritance patterns that xDNA has, it gives us the ability to eliminate certain lines of relationship. If we share xDNA with a match, there are certain areas of our family tree chart that we know that xDNA did not come from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just eliminates and, it because it can't come from dad. Well, it cannot come from dad if you're a male. Right. It does come from dad if you're a female. So mm-hmm. males have one X chromosome from their mother, and they have one Y chromosome from their father. That's what makes them a male. Mm-hmm. Females, on the other hand, have two X chromosomes. They got one from their mother, but also they got their father's X chromosome, which wow. he received from his mother. His mother. And so there are different patterns for women and for men. And I've actually seen these because they kind of map them out with a shading out of those that it can't come from where that X line is. So it basically can eliminate what percent of uh, possible ancestors as being the source of that shared X chromosome you might have with somebody you match with. Well, for a male, we can immediately eliminate his entire paternal half of his tree because he did not receive any X from his father. He only received the Y from his father. Mm -hmm. Therefore, if he has an X match, we know that it has to be on his maternal side. And then there are certain areas of his maternal side that are eliminated as well. Now, for a female, we can eliminate the paternal half of her father's half. So right. that translates to one-fourth of her yeah, tree quarter, that yeah. eliminate mm-hmm. immediately. So the secret to this is if you're looking at one of those charts, anywhere that you see two males in a row, that means that that area of ancestry back further from that point cannot be the source of X because you'll never have X passed from one male to a son. So it is the ultimate elimination tool when it comes to DNA research, yeah. right? 
That's right. It's very, very handy for that, yes. So this is an extra thing you're going to get on places, like you mentioned, on Family Tree DNA. And, and uh, GEDmatch does a great job with the X chromosome as well. They do indeed. GEDmatch is a third-party company in that they don't actually do DNA testing, but it's a site where people can upload their DNA results from testing companies and compare them to others who have tested either at that company or other companies uh, directly. And they do have some some tools available for evaluating and analyzing those xDNA results. So let's just talk for a minute to clarify for people who are a little confused about this because we hear about men getting the X chromosome from their mom, but then we think about mitochondrial DNA. There's a similarity, but they're not the same. Absolutely. So a male's X chromosome comes from his mother only, but it can be from his mother's mother's line and his mother's father's line, whereas mitochondrial DNA is strictly matrilineal. And what we mean by that, it came from his mother, her mother before her, her mother before her, only that, that line, directly down that line of unbroken females to him. And then males, the other distinction from mitochondrial is that males do not pass on their mitochondrial DNA. Right. where they will pass on their xDNA to their daughters only. Mm-hmm. So so the men get the Y chromosome and the mitochondrial. The women get the mitochondrial, but they don't get the Y. That's correct. They would get the X. And then, of course, both everyone gets the autosomal. Yes. Wow. So I, as a researcher, how often would you say you use the X chromosome in your research? It's a pretty specialized case where we use it when we're having uh, difficulty eliminating certain uh, areas of someone's tree as far as um, in an unknown birth family situation, if they have an X match, that, that can really help us with eliminating areas of connection with that ancestor. But most of the time nowadays, we can solve most cases using only the autosomal results. Yeah. It's pretty rare, really. I mean, the times that I've done it, I've never run across a case where I felt like I had to go in that direction. But it is a little bit more specialized. And there is education to be found online as well, right? Absolutely. Uh, There are some great blogs available which give information about this. Uh, Roberta Estes, for example, has several blogs about using the X chromosome. Kitty Cooper has some good writing about it. Uh, Blaine Bettinger as well. So it, it is available out there, yes. Yeah, so if you're really stuck on something and you're just going, man, where do I even begin? Which side is it coming from? And I guess that would have more to do if you don't know what your lines are. You're right. I, I would think anybody who's been adopted would look exactly. at this as a really uh, helpful tool. Yes, yes. Particularly. Now, for those who aren't adopted, where would be the times that this would be used the most, would you say? Well, Well, if they have a match that they just can't quite figure out how they're connected to and they've done testing at Family Tree DNA or 23andMe, then this could be the resource which makes the difference as far as being able to figure out that connection. There are certain familial relationships where two people actually must share xDNA, and if you don't share xDNA with someone you thought you had one of those relationships with, that would be a clue that there's something amiss in your tree. So this <laughs> does relate to fairly close relationships, though this would more apply to sure. an unknown birth family situation. But there are, again, 
certain relationships where two relatives will always share X DNA. Earlier this year, I ran into somebody who came up as a match as a second cousin, and I had no idea where this guy came from other than, you know, I hit my shared matches and it's like, oh, okay, this guy obviously is a descendant of my great grandparents, my dad's mother's parents, and he was adopted. So he had no idea. But if I didn't know what that was because he was adopted, I could also use this to try to help narrow that down as well, right? Absolutely. You can use that to help narrow down which lines you're related to him on because you would know if you shared xDNA that it would not be from his father's side or your father's side. So if you don't share xDNA, of course, you would need to do a little more research to determine what your relationship right. is. Right, and we didn't have an X, but it was it's still interesting to know that that's a tool there when you get a mysterious Absolutely. match. And one last point here, Scott. We can't actually predict a relationship based on the amount of xDNA that we share with someone like we do with autosomal DNA. Right. You know, with autosomal, we have these charts and we predict what level of cousin we are based on the amount of autosomal DNA we share. But we can't do that with xDNA because sometimes a mother's two X chromosomes before she passes it on, they might recombine or they might not. She might pass on an X chromosome entirely intact, in which case we'd have a whole line of possible X inheritance that we didn't actually receive any from. So those colored areas on those charts that you were talking about, those are possible areas of ex-inheritance, right. not to say that we definitely inherit from all those lines. Those are ones we could get ex-DNA from. Well, and really, yeah. uh, autosomal is about the only one that does kind of predict what the relationship would be more than anything else, more than Y, Absolutely. more than mitochondrial. Yeah. Uh, those just are direction finders, basically. But, you know, it's really interesting stuff. And I, I must admit, Deb, that I'm very grateful we don't have to use this too often. <laughs> involved. It's a little more complicated, but I think it's worth touching on for people who are starting to get deep in the weeds of this stuff, and uh, and you never know when you are going to use it. At some point, you're going to go, wait a minute, what was that all about? Maybe I can look into that, because it really is That's a right. great tool, and it's important to know that it's there. Hey, she's Deborah Renard from Legacy Tree Genealogist. Deb, thanks so much for coming on, and uh, really you're interesting welcome. stuff. Absolutely. Glad to have been here. Thank you. And it's interesting how many different ways people find to honor their ancestors, to learn about them, to understand how they lived. And uh, one couple of uh, ladies that I just learned about here recently came up with a new way, and that is to start their own National Society of Descendants. In this case, the National Society Descendants of American Farmers. And I have the two brainchilds of this whole thing, and of course the leaders. It's Janice Regal, the President National, and Davina. Littman. She is the National Registrar. Ladies, welcome to Extreme Genes. It's great to have you. Thank you so much. Where did this crazy idea come from? Three years ago, we were talking and thinking, why isn't there a society honoring farmers? And we thought, it's so obvious, it'll happen tomorrow. It will happen. (laughs) And it didn't. And it didn't. So we were having lunch with friends the last of February and started talking about new societies. And we mentioned farmers. And so that's how it started. So this was just kind of a a chat over lunch earlier this year, February. Yes, actually. And we were incorporated then by March. Genesee had us incorporated. March 10th. Wow. So you were the first two members. Did you vote for each other, by the way, for those positions? (laughs) I voted for her immediately. Fantastic. Now, how many members do you have now? 
We have exactly 914 charter members. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's incredible. So what are the qualifications then to join the uh, National Society Descendants of American Farmers? Our dates are July the 4th, 1776 through December the 31st, 1900. Okay. A census a death certificate, a will that states your ancestor was a farmer, Mm -hmm. or any other that would indicate American farmer. Sure. The ag listing also works. Okay. So uh, this is a big thing, though. 900 people, it started with you, too. And obviously, you had to qualify every one of those 914. Who reviewed the applications and, and the documentation? Davina has done every single one of the 914. (laughs) But now we are missing. We have 32 youth members who have qualified. Okay. And now we have 21 board members that Davina qualified. Oh, wow. So you're starting to spread the, the workload a little bit here, Davina. Yes, for sure. We have a wonderful board. It's a good teamwork. Sure. Now, so I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking, all right, you got all these people. They're spread out all through the country. How many states are you represented in? We lack, I believe, two. <laughs> You're in 48 states already? We have Hawaii and Alaska yes, and as, we members. Have, as members, and we have, I believe we are lacking two states uh, as of today. North Dakota is yes, one. yes. And I'd have to pull up the database to tell you. <laughs> to the figure out the, well, maybe we can get you somebody in North Dakota. Who knows, that would right? Be, that would and be this so makes a lot of sense. Yes. So, so let's For think sure. about this. Now, if you go to a chapter meeting, obviously with 900 people spread out, they're all going to be kind of small to start with. What's your biggest chapter so far? Guess what, Scott? Hmm. We have decided that everyone is too busy nowadays. Okay. There's too much stress on everyone. Yeah. So we did not want state societies. We did not want chapters. We thought much more fitting for farmers, we would have ambassadors in the states to recognize and promote us. And they will be doing field trips and tours and get-togethers to learn more about farming so that we can appreciate our farmers even more. Wow. So but there are meetings held somewhere at some point, yes? Absolutely. We have a national caucus in April of each year. Uh, This year it will be April the 6th at the Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Oh, how fun. (laughs) Oh, it's going to be phenomenal. And then we will do a tour on April the 7th. And then in June, we will meet again in Washington, D.C. for a meet and greet. But our ambassadors, Scott, are actively doing all different kinds of things. We have ambassadors in Arizona and all the way through Wyoming and everywhere else. Our first field trip was to Green Acres Farm. I thought you'd like that. In Terrell, Texas. And we visited a Cooney Cooney pig farm. And you you learned how pig farmers did their thing. Cooney Cooney pig farmers. Yes. Yes. Uh, okay, I'm not familiar. There's a there's a difference between regular pig farmers and Cooney Coonies. 
Yes, these were going extinct, and several breeders in the United States decided they were valuable pigs and needed to be helped. And these pigs are a little bit like dogs. Dottie Durrett is our national organizing director and showed us how she has trained this pig that she calls Captain. And she takes Captain to the veterans' hospitals. And the veterans just adore Captain. <laughs> and Captain knows how to roll over three times. He will pray. <laughs> Captain, when she goes bang, Captain will drop dead. Oh, Captain's marvelous. <laughs> So are you collecting uh, biographies on the uh, various farmer ancestors as you go about this? We have photographs, and we also have biographies. We have a beautiful website. It's nsdoaf.com. We showcase our ancestors' photographs, and we are also obtaining for our records biographies of the ancestors' That's great. So over time, you're going to collect a, a huge amount of information. You know, that's the thing about farmers. They don't generally create a lot of news, but I would imagine that with the digitized newspapers and the like now, you can probably put together a lot more information than we've been able to in the past. This is true. And, you know, another thing we're finding out with our members, there's a great deal of love involved with this society. They truly love their ancestor farmers, and they say to us, thank you all the time for starting this society. So it's really a wonderful feeling. Have you ever figured out why it was that this hasn't happened sooner? No, no. I think I think that everyone was waiting for Davina to say, I'm going to do it. <laughs> well, that's a great start. Can you imagine where this is going to be, say, in, in just two years or five years or ten years? That's what everyone says. Scott, I did want to tell you, our application process. Yes. If you do not want to provide all of your proofs for each generation, linking generation to generation, then we do accept the daughters of the American Revolution, the sons of the American Revolution, the recognized societies. We accept their approved applications that are signed along with our short form. Uh, for membership, but you still have to have the one page approved. And we have a lot of American farmers who have nothing to do with lineage right now. Right. Well, you know, I've been looking through mine and I'm thinking, I don't know that I have any. My mother's side was entirely Scandinavian and my dad's side has some back. There might be one back there, but I'm not 100 percent sure. I'm going to have to see if if I could do it. I will keep looking, ladies. I will. It's Davina Lipman. She's the National Registrar and Janice Sue Regal. She's the President National of the National Society of Descendants of American Farmers. Once again, the website is NSDOA. AF, National Society, Descendants of American Farmers, dot com. And you can find out all about it there if you have an interest. Ladies, thanks for coming on. It's been great talking to you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scott. And by the way, their registration money goes to agricultural scholarships. Yeah. David returns in minutes as we move on to Ask Us Anything on Extreme Genes, America's Family History Show. 
And we are back for Ask Us Anything on Extreme Genes, America's Family History Show and ExtremeGenes.com. David Allen Lambert is back from the New England Historic Genealogical Society to help me out here. Hello, David. Hey, how are you doing? Good. And here's our question. Now, this is from Jan Simpson in Huntsville, Alabama. And Jan writes, I've heard that my great uncle was in silent films in the teens and 20s. Is there a good source for learning more about his career? That's an interesting well, one. Yeah, that is. The first place that I would go to is the Internet Movie Database, imdb.com, because that has back to the silent movie era's earliest films all the way down to current blockbusters on the silver screen today. So I would try that. But also I would try newspapers, especially since so many 20th century newspapers are out there. You may be listed in the credits or they may be local boy makes big Newspapers are great. And don't you have a relative yourself that was in the South? Yeah, yeah. I had a couple of uh, different people in the film industry. In fact, my son is right now, but I had a great oh. aunt. She did costuming for the movies back in the 30s and 40s and 50s. But before mm-hmm. that, my grandfather's first cousin was in silent films. He played kind of a, a character from Scandinavia named Newt Erickson. And uh, oh. Newt was in vaudeville, and then he was in the silent films in the teens and the 20s. And I've actually found motion pictures he was in digitized and online and for sale on eBay. So that was kind of interesting. In the 30s, he was much older, and he played a crusty sea captain in some serialized movie. And so it was a lot of fun to see that. And I was just amazed at how much he looked like my grandfather and the resemblance to my second great-grandfather, who was his grandfather. Oh, that's really neat, especially when you can pull a connection of facial recognition yeah. to a family member. Well, and he had a lot of close-ups in this thing. They'd zero in on his crusty face for special effect. I'm going, oh my gosh, he looks just like my great-great-grandfather. It was just uh, an amazing thing. I don't know that my grandpa ever knew him or anything much about him, but uh, in tracing it down, it was fascinating to see what he had done. My mom was in movies, too, although she didn't get much that's in the way right. of credit, so I don't think she's on the IMDb. Yeah, well, you'll just have to create an entry for her yeah. and link her to the movies that she told you. I remember seeing a clip of one of the ones that you found yeah. online with her yeah. walking on. Yeah, It's a lot of fun, some of these uh, connections, and I think that's probably the best database. But I like what you're saying about the newspapers, because I did find online a lot of papers that talked about if there was a local connection to somebody in a movie, the entire town would want to come out and see that person they knew on the big screen. So they would advertise that, you know, this film's going to be released and it's going to be showing at this time. And this local uh, guy or this local gal was in this movie. So you can get a lot of interesting color about it and maybe even a little more about your ancestor from the newspaper story telling about what was in their career, maybe other flicks that they had been in and roles that they had played and maybe people they even acted with, which is really quite fun. It really is, and so you just never know what you're going to find until you start searching for it. Well, you know, one of the things that you can also try is Variety Magazine, because that was great even in the early era yeah. to catch the stories of people in the movie industry. And then, of course, going to the archives for that studio. I mean, look, Universal's been around since 1915, and a lot of other studios were bought up by other major studios, so you could possibly... Go ahead and use that as a connection, too. Do a little archival digging in Hollywood, perhaps. You you mentioned Variety, and uh, Variety not only covers film, but it covers early television. It covered radio. Anybody was really appearing in pretty much of anything. I don't know if it—did that extend to stage? Um, 
I don't believe it did, but it could have early on in the, the infancy of the yeah. movie industry. Yeah, it could very well have been. So there are all kinds of sources. And also, you might want to just Google the name and see what comes up. So there's some great answers there. And thanks so much, Jan, for the question. And uh, David, this is an interesting question here. It's from uh, Susan Smith in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. She says, I have a first cousin match that doesn't make any sense. The match is 30 years younger than me. Is this for sure what the relationship must be? <laughs> That's an interesting one. I have a lot to say about that, David. What, what say you? Well, I mean, the other thing you have to take into consideration is that relative you assume could also be like a second cousin once removed or a third cousin. But yeah, I mean, it's just different levels. You have to look at the amount of centimorgans in it. So it's not just one option. I mean, you've seen this yourself in many things that you've done for friends. Yeah, and I actually had this come up really recently. In fact, this past week where there was a, a two second cousins that are second cousins to each other. But there was a match to one second cousin that came in as a first cousin match. But that first cousin match didn't make any sense because that would have meant uh, her grandparents from the West Coast would have parented together a child on the East Coast and given it up for adoption. And that didn't make any sense at all because that couple stayed together throughout their lives. They had many children. It just didn't fit. So if you go to uh, Blaine Bettinger's shared Centimorgan project, you'll see a great chart there. And you will find, Susan, that the Centimorgans for a first cousin is virtually identical to that of half aunt, half uncle, half niece, half nephew. So this might be your half niece or nephew match, meaning that one of their parents would be a half sibling to you. And that would mean that one of your parents had a child at some point down the line, which is very possible. You know, and these things are coming up all the time. So don't be too shocked if that is the case. One thing you might want to do is reach out to the match and ask if either of their parents uh, happened to be adopted, because that would be a telltale sign right there that this might be the way the whole thing lays out. Well, DNA has just changed the industry of genealogy and how people had thought that was a family connection or assumed that was the parentage of somebody. And it really is the final equalizer, if you will. Yeah. Uh, but there is still that level of, is it a second cousin or is it a great uncle? I sure. Mean, it, there are other options. You really have to look at it. And so don't draw a conclusion. Always get a second opinion. Right. And you want to look at the age difference, as you did, which is what brought the question about in the first place. So you want to always do that and make sure that it's within the same generation or what that might be. So, yeah, that wouldn't make a lot of sense. It makes more sense this way. But we will see. You're going to have to dig into it a little bit more. So let us know what you find. We'll be very interested. You know, I just went through this recently, David, with somebody. I was trying to prove or disprove whether somebody was the grandmother of a friend of mine. And we tested somebody that was either going to come in as a half uncle or as mm -hmm. a first cousin once removed. And that result actually came in today. Exactly. It was a first, wow. yeah, first cousin once removed. A 90-year-old gentleman agreed to do the test, which means his mother could not have been the grandmother of my friend. And since we were trying to narrow it down, we now know who my friend's grandmother is. So it worked out really well. It's great to use for elimination as well. Well, there you go. That's Ask Us Anything for this week. And, of course, anytime you have a question, just email us at askusanything at extremegenes.com. That's it, David, our final show of 2019 and the teens. We're going to take a holiday break for a couple of weeks and we'll be back with some new guests to start out the new year and really looking forward to that. David, Merry Christmas to you and your family and have a great weekend. You as well, Fish. 
Well, there we go. A wrap on the show, a wrap on the week, the month, the year, in fact, the decade. And we're now six and a half years into Extreme Genes. And I thank you sincerely so much for all the support since we started this show in 2013. On to a new decade coming up here real soon. Talk to you soon. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.